Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Thursday, November 1st, the day after Halloween, and this is the Fisgianados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistianados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistianatospod. I say it every every episode, but a lot to get to. Let's jump right into it. Let's review the action over the last two weeks. On Saturday, October 20th, we had a lot of action all on streaming services where there will be no ratings, but let's get into the ramifications of the results. On DAZN's Eddie Hurd card, we had Demetrius Andrade winning by wide unanimous decision over Walter Katondakwa. Katie Taylor winning by unanimous decision over Cindy Serrano. Tevin Farmer winning by KO5 over James Tennyson. And Kid Galahad beating Toka Khan Clary by unanimous decision. I am going to get to the Andrade part of it a little bit later in the show because... I'm going to talk about the middleweight division in larger terms. So as for Katie Taylor, great performance. Nice to see that she's a draw in terms of ticket sales. I'm sort of curious to see who is out there for her, but I like watching her fight. I'd love to know, you know, what's next. There's not the same kind of depth in women's boxing as there is in the men's division. Um, Maybe she can jump weight class. I mean, there, there there are some women out there, but... None of them are really at the same weight class, at least with, you know, the name ones. Um, But I I like watching women fight. I mean, this was a thing, you know, MMA fans out there probably got adjusted to this maybe eight or ten years ago. Uh, It's not, if you're sort of an old school boxing fan, it's not something you're used to seeing, but I really enjoy it. I think there's, uh, you know, I loved watching Katie Taylor fight. I think if you're an exciting fighter, you're an exciting fighter. Um, Tevin Farmer. All right. Great performance for him. Nice to see a KO uh, from him. Remember, though, this was a showcase fight. Farmer had the perfect style to come in and look very impressive over a fighter like Tennyson. The odds for this actually weren't crazy. I think he was only a three or four to one favorite. Um, But I guess we all missed out on making a lot of money. I mean, he showed he was dominant in this. This isn't to take away anything from Farmer as a fighter, but just remember, like, last December, Farmer lost to Kenichi Ogawa on HBO, who then got popped for a PED thing, so it got changed to a no contest. And then Farmer beat Billy Div for his IBF title. Now, <clears throat> that loss was extremely controversial because most scorecards on press row had Farmer winning, but I think the larger point here, you know, is that the, what you saw on Saturday was impressive, but the matchmaking was really intended to make him look good. And I think he's a really talented fighter. He's certainly a great story. Um, 
I know there have been talks with it, you know, for a Tank Davis fight, but this is really actually more, it, it, it's more about the division. And I think this division is loaded with great fighters. There are lots of fun fights out there to make. Even though I would favor Tevin Farmer in lots of the fights, let's not get too caught up in this performance. Let's see him in tougher. More on this weight class in a bit. Um, as for the first fight on the card, it wasn't the most entertaining, but I think both Galahad and Conclary can be matched up well in future fights. Um, you know, my question is, what are you really trying to do at featherweight the zone? So, like, if these are your guys there, what are you really trying to do? So, let's either see some bigger fights there or, you know, let's focus on the, on the weight classes where you have some depth. ESPN Plus had a card from Las Vegas where Rob Brandt, who is about an 8-1 to one underdog, beats Ryota Murata by wide unanimous decision to win a secondary WBA title at middleweight that really translates to eventually being the mandatory for Canelo in some way, shape, or form. Um, <clears throat> also on the card, Maxime Dadashoff beats Antonio DeMarco in a step-up fight. Uh, Rob Brand, he looked great, and even though he won pretty much every round, uh, it was really fun to watch. I mean, he made it for a great TV fight for guys like that who weren't really highly touted prospects and they came up the hard way. Like, this was a major milestone. It's a life-changing win that actually has a huge impact on the middleweight division. And, you know, again, more on that in a second. <coughs> Excuse me. The Dadashoff to Marco fight was okay. I did not really walk away from that thinking Dadashoff was must-see TV, but... I'm, I'm willing to see him fight again. Um, the World Boxing Super Series was back on DAZN, where Emmanuel Rodriguez defeats Jason Maloney by a tight split decision in a really fun fight. And then Junior Dorticos beats uh, Matthew Masternak or Matus Masternak by unanimous decision. Rodriguez advances at featherweight to fight Inoue, and Dorticos moves on at cruiserweight to fight Tabidi. Both these fights were really fun. Um, and you know, eventually I will con comment on the broadcast of what they're on, what DAZN is doing for the world boxing super series. Um, but th I mean, these are great, like it's great fun fights. So then moving on to the next weekend on Saturday, October 27th, we have HBO's last high level card probably ever where Danny Jacobs beats Sergey Derevyanchenko by split decision for the vacant IBF middleweight title. The show averaged 500,000 viewers, peaking around 553,000. Heavy competition from the World Series, which did an average of 13.5 million viewers. We also saw Fox Sports 1 do a terrible rating. Um, <clears throat> I think it was like 531,000 average viewers for a UFC card, like by far their lowest card, uh, their lowest viewership number in quite some time there. On the surface, this... HBO rating is a terrible number, but I actually think you need to go beyond that. I think it's actually a really strong indicator of how well the sport of boxing is doing. Um, and that seemed to be a hot take. I put that on Twitter a few days ago. That was like the hot take out there. Who knew? Um, look, HBO has already announced they've abandoned the sport. They put no promotion behind this at all. No marketing campaign on the channel or off the channel. And they're just kind of playing out the string here. So to do 500,000 viewers during a World Series game 
when most core boxing fans have, you would assume, have already canceled their HBO subscription, I think that speaks well just to the popularity of the sport. The sad thing is, and more on this later, it also speaks to why HBO is leaving. If they can get 500,000 viewers after they've already announced they're leaving the sport, and they would even really only hope to get a million viewers for a good fight like this, then they know they're not really losing out on that many subs by leaving the sport. More on this later because I will do the deep dive on sort of a, a, a more, I don't want to say cultured look at HBO, a less emotional, from my point of view, look on, on HBO the year they've had and what they're really doing by leaving. Um, <clears throat> again, more on the middleweight division here in a second. Let's get through the rest of the fights of this night, and then I'll go back to that division uh, because this fight was huge, and the stakes were incredibly high for zone and Triple G's future options and just everything about the middleweight division in general. Other fights on the card, Alberto Machado with a KO1 over Yondale Evans and Heather Hardy with a unanimous decision over Shelly Vincent. Um, both of these were pretty significant because Machado is now a network free agent. He's got a secondary title, but will eventually be the mandatory for Javante Tank Davis because they both hold pieces of the WBA belt. And this is one of those weight classes that we talk a lot about on this podcast because every network is trying to get in on the action. HBO was showing fights earlier this year. ESPN Plus is jumping in on November 3rd. Showtime has Tank Davis, who has a belt. The Zone has Tevin Farmer, who's got a belt. This weight class also has a lot of other talent, Miguel Burchelt who, like I said, is fighting on ESPN+, Plus. Tank Davis, Machado, Jezreel Corrales, Francisco Vargas, Mickey Roman, Orlando Salido, Masayuki Ito, Jason Sosa. You can probably name a lot more. There's a lot of depth here. There's plenty of great fights to get made, plenty of great styles. And Lomachenko has moved up to 135 pounds, so there isn't this one dominant champ who's kind of like a boogeyman and makes it seem like all the other fights are less important. Like, that guy's gone, and the rest of these guys are all fighting to see who's the best out there. It's, it, it could be a really fun tournament. I actually think, like, this could be a, a weight class where the World Boxing Super Series could have done a great tournament. Um, and it would have been great TV. But we're kind of going to see networks do their own tournament for it and fight it out. And none of these guys uh, at this weight class were major, like, fiscal sort of bombshells in terms of what they got paid. So I think it's great for them that there's going to be some competition for their services. And I think we'll see some great fights. You can, you can, a lot of these are financially feasible. Um, Heather Hardy's win probably sets her up for some nice paydays to zone is really getting into televising women's boxing in a real way. We talked about Katie Taylor earlier. There's Cecilia Bracus. There's Clarissa Shields who I think is going over to zone. They're all in different weight classes. But Hardy has a really TV-friendly style, an interesting personal background. Um, <clears throat> I think there's more for her out there. Other cards that night, including the World Boxing Super Series, where Regis Progre wins by dominant unanimous decision over Terry Flanagan. And Ivan Branchik wins by KO7 over Anthony Yidget. ESPN Plus also aired Kubret Pulev's win over Huri Fury, and then there's another DAZN card where John Ryder beat Andre Sorotkin by KO7. I don't have a whole lot to say about all these. Uh, real quick, though, 
On the Pulev win, ESPN Plus needs to start fine-tuning the viewer experience for that. As I watched the same Under Armour commercial like 15 times during the broadcast, it's not really a smooth transition between the UK commentary and between rounds and some of the ads you're seeing. Uh, as for the fight, I mean, it was a decent enough fight. Pulev obviously won. I don't think that's really controversial. Quick notes on the World Boxing Super Series. I would have loved to see Progray win by KO rather than decision, but he gave a complete performance in the ring. He looked way less vulnerable than he has in the past. I hope that's a sign of things to come because his potential, I mean, except for his age, I think he's like 29. Other than that, everything about him, his potential is really high. I mean, he looks like a complete stud. Um, Baranchik also looked really good. I mean, that was a great effort by Yijit in a loss, but <clears throat> fun fight. Baranchik looked good. It just comes back to every time I say this one, these are really good fights that the World Boxing Super Series is putting on. Even in the quarterfinal rounds, they're coming on strong for me and I think for a lot of other hardcore fight fans. Like This has been the most important acquisition DAZN has made so far in terms of winning those hardcore fans over. I mean, everyone, of course, it's like, of course I want to see Canelo on there, uh, especially when I don't have to pay 85 bucks for him. But this is the stuff, like, I'm watching this every single week, and it's been fun. You know, it's like the analogy I'll probably try to make here and not do 100% well, but it's like that, I don't know if anybody out there has sort of seen a band or some kind of musical group or whatever, um, and you're watching it with, like, 200 other people in a small venue, but they're, the band is freaking awesome, or if it's a solo person, like, they're incredible, and you just know they're going to blow up. And you know that, like, at some point in your life, you're going to watch them with, like, instead of 300 people, like, 5,000 people or 10,000 people. Um, that's kind of what it feels like when you're watching this. It's You know, maybe it's a TV show that isn't getting any buzz, but it's going to come around and win a bunch of awards or something. That's what it feels like when you're watching this. It's been good. It's been just really good, solid TV, especially at 118 and 140. Uh, we've kind of, I think they've put on six or seven so far. There's really only been one stinker um, from from the World Boxing Super Series. And that's the first round. That's not including the semi uh, or final cards. Okay, let's take a moment here to go back to middleweight because there was a significant amount of action over the last two weeks that has changed the landscape in a really important way. For what has become the highest profile weight division, you know, it's probably overtaken welterweight at this point. The stakes were really high during the HBO fight for a lot of reasons. And let's start with the fighters. Danny Jacobs probably secures another chance at a legacy fight. Like, obviously, he had one with Triple G. Now it sounds like he's going to get one with Canelo. His financial future. I mean, he's probably, God, he could make more money if Canelo beats Rocky Fielding in December and comes out unscathed injury-wise, and it ends up being Canelo versus Danny Jacobs for the big Cinco de Mayo weekend fight. I mean, that could be more money than Jacobs has made in his career combined up to this point. It certainly would be a career-high payday. For Derevchenko, this was really his first high-level fight. And he put on a great performance. I mean, it was, yes, it was in a loss. But I, I totally think it could have gone his way in the scorecards. I think 7-5 to five in rounds for Derek Vincenco was a legit score. I mean, yeah, you'd have to give him every benefit of the doubt, and Julie Letterman did. 
you know, I probably had it more like 6-6 or 7-5 in rounds to Jacobs. Um, and obviously, if you scored at 6-6, Jacobs had the knockdown, so he wins the fight. I didn't really score it that closely, but I do remember specifically disagreeing with Harold Letterman on a few of those rounds. Obviously, had Derevinchenko won, his life would have completely changed even more than just putting on a great performance. But you still have to think that he's headed to many other high-level fights at middleweight, and he's going to get paid. From a network standpoint, though, <clears throat> I'm going to take you through an incredibly convoluted picture here. But to just even start, wow, did everything break right for zone during the last month. Had the scorecards gone the other way in the HBO fight, there would have been a title up for grabs. Derevyanchenko is with Ludabella, and he could go to any network. I'm sure Showtime would have loved to see him win and try to lure him over there for an eventual fight with Charlo. But that didn't happen, and now DAZN has every title at middleweight, assuming Jacobs does in fact go there, because two weeks ago, Andre also won. Now, I don't think we can automatically assume Jacobs is going to go to zone because apparently his deal with Hearn, I mean, obviously his deal with HBO is up, apparently his deal with Hearn is also up, he still does have Al Heyman in his life, but at the end of the day, it's tough to see him going anywhere else other than zone right now. There is a secondary title held by Rob Brandt and an interim title held by Jamal Charlo, but those are kind of like sham titles that just amount to eventual mandatory fights. Remember a month ago, DAZN didn't have any middleweight belts. So let's just take a moment to look back at everything that has broken their way. Andre was initially supposed to fight BJ Saunders in a fight where, remember, Saunders is with Frank Warren, who has a deal with Top Rank and ESPN for their international distribution. And Saunders was actually a favorite in that fight, and I think most smart boxing people were picking him to win. I mean, I guess it shouldn't shock you as a favorite. He was a huge favorite, but most smart boxing people were picking Saunders to win just based on the stylistic matchup. So by Saunders failing that drug test, that was huge because Andre went from being an underdog to a huge favorite and he won in dominant fashion. Rob Brandt beating Murata was also huge because Murata won. Had he won, you almost certainly would have seen Golovkin Go to ESPN, maybe only for a fight, but and go to ESPN and fight Murata in Japan, not only for a big payday, but for that secondary title as well. We don't know where Brand is going yet. I mean, I think he's got a rematch clause with Murata, so maybe that happens next for him, uh, which I guess I, just, I would assume would still be in the ESPN universe. But in summary here, we've got ESPN, who surely wanted to be part of this division in a real way, who's now on the outside looking in. ESPN had Murata with a secondary belt and by virtue of Frank Warren output deal at least had the closest access to BJ Saunders. So now instead of having the inside track at Golovkin by offering him a winnable payday with Murata and then a strong follow-up fight with Saunders, they have nothing really. They're going to have to rely upon the WBO giving Saunders a mandatory shot against Andre after suspension to get a belt to just be even in the conversation, and that puts their bid to win the Golovkin free agency sweepstakes in a precarious position. The PBC can't be happy because you'd have to think either Showtime or Fox would be interested in this weight class, and they've got Charlo, who I'm assuming they don't want to lose. So everything here has broken DAZN's way. 
And if they end up winning the Triple G sweepstakes, every major fight will happen on DAZN in this weight class, which is the highest profile weight class. And just a few days ago, Mike Coppinger broke a report that says it looks like Triple G is in fact going to DAZN. And I'm sure it would cost them a lot of money and they'll have to figure out some cards where Lawler can showcase his other guys. But if this happens, I mean, the DAZN has wrapped it up. Pretty much the only way they won't have it is if Saunders does get that mandatory shot at the WBO title, wins, and then kind of does BJ Saunders things and stays inactive or fights somewhere else. You know, or maybe Danny Jacobs gets overwhelmed with an offer to go to the uh, Fox or Showtime with the PBC, you know, fight there, or if Charlo somehow convinces the WBC to honor his belt and strip Canelo or something like that. Those all seem really unlikely to me. Uh, I think it's even more likely that if Saunders, Derevyanchenko, Brandt, and Charlo want relevant middleweight fights, then they need to actually fight on DAZN. This network isn't ba- this network battle is not over yet, but DAZN has got to be really happy with how everything broke their way over the last few weeks. I mean, signing Canelo was a big deal, but now they can make a legit case that in two of the three most important weight classes in the sport, at middleweight and heavyweight, you have to scrub, sub, <clears throat> excuse me, subscribe to DAZN if you want to see the big fights. And the crazy thing about everything I described is just a month ago, you would have assumed there was actually very little chance that it all would have broken this way. All right, let's do a couple news and notes real quick. There were a ton of them. The big one here, and I'm going to actually leave this on its own for now. I'm definitely going to address it in future, either probably on the podcast deep dive for next episode um, or in an article. I think I might write about it too. Who knows? The Showtime pay-per-view schedule coming up, they're going to have one December 1st. Then they're going to have one in January. They're going to have one in February. I mean, to be fair to them, except for December 1st, which we know Wilder versus Fury is happening. This is stuff that's being reported. It's not anything that's actually officially announced yet. And I think we need some context before anybody comments on it too much. Uh, So I'll try to be fair to them on that front. You guys probably know my initial take, though, which is these are all lower-level pay-per-views, and there needs to be a really good reason for them going to pay-per-view because Showtime now has a larger budget than they had last year, per Steven Espinoza. And their philosophical approach up to this point has been anti-fights like this going to pay-per-view to their massive credit. And I think they've had such a strong year this year. I'd hate to see I'd hate to see a lot of these happen. Um, I think there is a the, the Wilder Fury was a risk, and I think it is actually starting to look very good for them. I think so far everything that have, that could have gone well for that has gone well, and we'll see if that continues. And I legitimately want to see that fight. So that's one thing. I think these others, we're in dangerous territory. I don't want to talk too much about it now. I'm going to talk about it a lot in the future. Another news note, Fox debut fight announced December 22nd, starts at 8 p.m. Eastern, Featuring Jermall Charlo fighting Willie Monroe Jr. and Jermell Charlo fighting Tony Harrison. Dominic Brazil is fighting Carlos Negron to start out the card. Look, this is an inauspicious start for Fox to say the least. 
I'm glad we're seeing the Charlo brothers fight on the same card. I'm actually interested in the Tony Harrison fight. The heavyweight fight is totally uninteresting to me. William Monroe Jr., also uninteresting, and I think that one, egregious is not the right word for it, but that one doesn't make sense. Given the amount of great middleweights that are out there, we just did a freaking mini deep dive into that and, and covered it. That division is thriving with great opponents. I don't need to see a Charlo fight William Monroe Jr. Um, I thought Fox would have wanted to come out of the gate stronger than this. There's more to come on Fox, um, it, it, especially with the press conference they gave about some of their strategy stuff. There's a lot more to come on this. All right, so going from one sort of meh fight card to a pretty washed one, let's talk about the Frez Okendo $500,000 offer and the November 17th fight on DAZN. This fight card started out as Sergio Martinez versus Chavez Jr., believe it or not. That's what they were talking about, like, maybe two months ago. <clears throat> and while it is certainly interesting and potentially in its own category, to end up aiming to be that high of a profile card and you end up with Frez Akendo turning down a main event, boy, Eddie Hearn, I mean, he started strong in Chicago. I'll give him a pass on the Boston card, uh, which I was really interested in seeing that the main event with Andre and Saunders before the suspension. And the other matchups were, you know, they weren't terrible. They were they were pretty good. Um, but this card is the antithesis of must-see streaming. I am happy he's going to local markets and bringing local fighters, but this is not good. This is just not good boxing. Um, there's a Sports Business Journal article out there on Golden Boy insinuating that the Golden Boy deal with DAZN is an exclusive deal. It's sort of like a behind-the-scenes article. John Oran wrote it. It's, it's a nice article. It, it went behind the scenes, like I said, on John Skipper making the Golden Boy deal for DAZN, and it definitely insinuates that it's a completely exclusive deal. This is interesting to me. It means that Golden Boy and Main Events deal with Facebook Watch is in a weird place. Because Golden Boy, if it is exclusive, they can't have another deal with Facebook Watch. And Main Events is also supposedly signing a deal with NBC Sports. So I don't know what this means for Facebook Watch. Facebook has maintained they have interest in the sport. And I actually thought it was a fun way to do some of the lower level fights out there. I think it was a, a great opportunity for a promoter out there. You know, especially given the kind of viewership we saw early on in the series... I'd love to see someone like Lou DiBella do Broadway boxing or something like this on Facebook Watch. I think that fa that platform is out there for the taking, and I think if you come with the right kind of, of, of fights, you can really make it work. Um, and it's free for everybody. All you got to do is have a Facebook account. HBO. Let's talk about HBO. Let's talk about the year in review for HBO. This might even feel a little late. Um... But I wanted to do a year in review, and I guess we can call this now like CSI, why HBO is out of boxing. Because I'd initially planned on doing this kind of a deep dive a few episodes ago, with the goal being to build up to what I thought at the time was potentially their last year in the sport, and sort of making the case as, as for why it now is. And I know I talked about this two episodes ago, that was sort of more in the heat of the moment, a little bit more emotional. You know, 
this I want to really take a look at like this the, the evidence that we have. Like when you look at the product that they put out over 2018, especially if you subscribe just for boxing or just for sports in general, it's really obvious as to why they're gone. You know, Peter Nelson in particular has shouldered a lot of the blame from boxing writers, and I think there's some merits to to what a lot of the writers have argued against him. Um, but I am actually prepared to defend him on on certain other things. But let's start here with an overall look at HBO's linear schedule. Counting the fight this past weekend, they put on 11 cards on HBO in 2018 and then one pay-per-view. Now, there'll be two more lower-level cards that they'll put on in November and December. 13 total cards over the course of the year. That's extremely low by any standard. Uh, it's... And it, it's really not how few cards there were, because even if you had in the pay-per-view fight, there were 14 cards. I mean, just a few years ago, 20 to 22 cards wasn't completely out of the norm. And they've definitely gone more than that. It, this is all more about the sustained quality that's happened over the course of the year. And just look at some of the fights here. The January card had Linares and Matisse in separate fights. There were two complete mismatches. You know, the February card was Superfly 2, and it was really good. Like, Swarovung Visai versus Estrada was a legit fight. But that March made event was a complete mismatch. That was Kovalev versus McHalkin. You know, it actually had a an intriguing undercard with Bivol on it. But then it went up against the Showtime Wilder Ortiz fight, so that was like a complete waste right there. Then later that month, they got the feed of the Dillian White uh, Lucas Brown card from Eddie Hearn, which... I mean, it seems totally ridiculous right now that they got that. That was back when we didn't know DAZN existed, and Eddie Hearn just sort of got him to pay for one of his fights in, in London, you know, an early afternoon card. I mean, how ridiculous does that seem? In April, they matched up Danny Jacobs with a decent junior middleweight in Selecki, and and let that sink in, a decent, like a good junior middleweight in Selecki, not, you know, who stepped up. And he was a good fighter. He made a decent fight. In May, Triple G, Vanus was, you know, only on linear TV rather than pay-per-view because of the strange circumstances surrounding what was originally supposed to be the Canelo-Triple G rematch. Um, the following week, we had Jaime Mugia burst onto the scene with a KO win over Saddam Ali. That was great TV. But then, oddly, there was enough time off in between fights that Jaime Mugia literally headlined the next fight against one of the Smith brothers from England, and maybe that something like that happened in the 1980s when HBO had years where they did only a handful of the top events over the course of the year. But ever since HBO has truly been the industry leader, especially ever since Boxing After Dark has existed, I'm not sure they've ever had the same guy headline two cards in a row. In August, there was Kovalev Alvarez, and that was a strong card. That's just... That's not in hindsight either. That was a really good matchup, and Bivol was in tough against Chalemba, or at least he was supposed to be in tough against Chalemba. Uh, most thought that the main event would end in a Kovalev KO, and Bivol would be in a tough scrap. It was just the opposite. Bivol was not in a tough scrap. He was in sort of an awkward scrap, and, and Kovalev lost. They went about a month after that, and they did the September 8th card, which was that the, the lower-level Superfly card. I've gone over that at length in a previous episode, but this one, in my opinion, was one of the low points in HBO boxing history for a variety of reasons. To quickly summarize, it might be the lowest rate of primetime boxing they've ever had, and they used it as a 
really poor part of the buildup to the Canelo Triple G fight the following week, which underperformed in pay-per-view buys. They could have the 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 opportunity lost uh, <clears throat> lost here. They could have planted their flag, which a mu- with a much stronger fight, much earlier in the process. They could have put the Jacobs Derevchenko fight on September eighth in New York. Instead, Showtime stole their thunder, put on a strong welterweight card the same night in Brooklyn, and destroyed them in the ratings. Uh, I've gone over that, you know. The next couple cards, it features Dimitri Bevel, there's Chuck Latito. Let's see who the opponents are. I mean, it's, you know, they're going to be lower level cards. They're probably going to be mismatches. But you all don't need me here to just rattle off fight cards that HBO put on this year. I mean, I do think when you hear it all, you start to realize why they are out of the boxing business, though. The Superfly 2 card in February, the jacobs Derevchenko matchup, and the Kovalev-Alvarez card, that was legit boxing. It was legit boxing in the buildup, and it turned out to be legit boxing. But what else can you say was really can't miss TV? I mean, the Triple G-Vonis fight, that got a great rating, and it was fun, but I mean, it only happened because of crazy circumstances. And Triple G only got paid a million bucks for that fight, which is totally ridiculous. I mean... The only reason we even got him on HBO rather than on some weird pay-per-view is because ESPN started inquiring about him to fight on ESPN for that card. There were only a few fight cards all year with odds that were even remotely close, like Las Vegas betting odds, which is something I harp on all the time. The Vegas odds, in a lot of ways, as I've said before, they're the best numerical scorecard out there for how closely the fights are matched. Maybe not the best overall TV, but definitely the best for how close of fights they'll be. And HBO had way too many fights where the odds were 10 to 1 or over. 10 to 1 odds in pure mathematics means you are watching something where the favorite has a 90.9% chance of winning, which to me basically means it's a predetermined outcome. I think sometimes there are reasons where odd makers get the stuff wrong or there are pathways for an underdog to victory that aren't reflected properly. But just think about how much time you spend boxing and how many of those fights have had odds like that. You know, looking back on some of this, like Jaime Munguia's emergence was fun, but, you know, we've talked about this in the podcast before. It was much more of a happy accident that can be traced back to last year when Miguel Cotto wanted a farewell fight, and the only reason HBO had money to do that is because the Klitschko-Joshua 2 fight didn't happen. If HBO was staying in the boxing business, they could point to having the biggest fight of the year in Canelo Triple G, but that was on pay-per-view. I don't like including it in the slate unless you look at the total dollars involved. Most people are spending between 12 and 15 bucks a month on HBO, and if you want to add in $85 for the one Canelo Triple G fight, you're looking at $230 to $260, like that kind of range for the year to spend on boxing. Just for one of them, for one channel. How could you possibly be okay with that, with this kind of schedule? I mean, DAZN is going to put on more competitive fights than that, than what HBO did in three months, than what HBO did over the course of 2018. DAZN has only broadcast fights from September 22nd to December 22nd this year. So they're literally doing in three months, costing you $10 a month, First month free, by the way, so that's 20 bucks. I mean, the World Boxing Super Series by itself has produced 
much better action and closer matched fights. But let's take this one step further. I did a show two episodes ago that touched, like I said, sort of my instant reaction to the news. But while we're on HBO, let's dive deeper into the reasons they're out. Since a lot of others have talked about it, and I think in particular Lou DiBella has been the best person to listen to on this subject, I mean, Peter Nelson, let's just put it this way, he's taken a lot of crap from writers out there who are noticeably frustrated, not just with HBO's decline in the sport, but how it was presented to them and how Peter treated them. There's been a lot of solid writing about the decline in matchmaking and the kind of fights that were happening. I don't want to take anything away from those writers because they aren't wrong at all. I'm pretty sure Peter will look back at this a year from now and feel like he could have done a better job in handling the press portion of it. I mean, his language in interviews, quite frankly, was just a bunch of fancy words strung together that didn't mean anything. I mean, trust me, like Peter went to Harvard, but that stuff was gobbledygook. It meant nothing. There are plenty of other people in HBO who went to fancy Ivy League schools, too, and none of them talk like that. I am going to defend Peter a little bit, though, here. In the last three or four years, HBO changed quite a bit. And not just in an, like, oh, we have to compete with Netflix way. I don't mean to insinuate that HBO isn't competing with Netflix. I worked for Mike Lombardo back when Netflix got House of Cards away from HBO at the last minute. HBO and Netflix were competing with each other before that ever happened. And trust me, though, I was there. Once that happened, HBO was definitely in full-out total war with Netflix. I'm not talking about that. The bigger moment was when Fox almost bought Time Warner, which was years after HBO was in that full-out war with Netflix. And that was actually a pretty well-kept secret for a while. To most of people at HBO, it was clear evidence that Time Warner had decided they wanted to cash out. They were looking for some company to come in and buy everything. It changed the culture and the goals of probably every Time Warner-owned company, but especially at HBO. HBO makes a huge profit margin. But if you are looking to the future, HBO is an institution that, regardless of whether Netflix is there or not, can't be in a niche business. In the coming streaming age, and almost right now as we speak, no company can thrive as a small add-on in the pay cable universe. Here's what I mean by that. For HBO to survive and thrive as a company 10 to 15 years from now, they need major subscriber growth. Most people in the boxing industry write or talk about it, HBO having close to 35 million subscribers. I'm going to quote a number I found from Statistica.com, just looking online for it, and it puts it at 54 million people for subscribers for HBO. I can't say whether that's accurate or not. All I will say is, trust me, there's definitely more than 35 million subscribers, and it's growing fast. The problem here is they need more. They need like 60 or 70 million, maybe even 80 million. Netflix has somewhere around 58 million in the United States right now, and they need to grow too. This pressure has a huge effect on all of the executives, but especially the ones who are major decision makers. If you're Richard Plepler, who's the CEO, if you're Casey Bloys, who's the new sort of president of programming, for those not familiar, like you're not going to lose your job if HBO doesn't make great fights. And for that matter, you won't lose your job if they don't make great docs or great original movies or great comedy specials or great concerts. When HBO had 30 million subscribers, 
it wanted to give all the subscribers a reason each month not to cancel their subscription. And you had it sort of had like a potpourri type approach to programming. And you had a lot of that stuff. It was a big deal if concerts went down or late night went down. It was a big deal. But now, given the subscriber numbers that need to be hit for the business model to work, you just can't put resources into making better fights. Like, what are you going to get? A couple hundred thousand more subscribers? If you put a, a, like tens of millions of dollars more into boxing? Even if two million subscribers were there just for boxing, that's a fraction of what they need to do. They need as many chances as they can get to have another Game of Thrones or Sopranos. You know, meanwhile, 2 million subscribers is huge for DAZN. You know, we talked about this last episode. For ESPN to get to the point where a million people are watching their average, like, sort of normal fights, God, that's like a really successful business model. Furthermore, to the point I was making earlier in the show with HBO announcing they're leaving the sport and still doing 500,000 viewers, that means to HBO that half the people that really like boxing are not canceling their subscriptions right now because they like the other stuff enough. It's just evidence that they did the right thing by getting out of boxing and using that money to take a shot on another show. That's why Bob Arum is running around saying Showtime is in trouble. <clears throat> Quite frankly, it's why I've said it too. I'm not making bold claims like Arum that they're going to be out of the, you know, in a year or whatever, but I think Showtime will face these pressures eventually. You know, they're in a different situation for a variety of reasons that we don't need to address right now. It's also why I believe Peter Nelson, when he goes around saying that he had evidence that boxing wasn't affecting subscribership. You know, yes, in a lot of ways, as many others have pointed out, you know, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I believe Peter. I also believe Steven Espinoza when he says that it's a major contributor to Showtime for, for subscribers. Peter's comments are certainly going against the trend in the sport right now. But John Stanky, who is the AT&T exec now essentially in charge of all that was previously Time Warner programming, Stanky is publicly talking about a streaming service that will eventually compete with Netflix and Disney's options that HBO will certainly be one of the featured elements on. If you want to blame someone for the demise of HBO Boxing, don't blame Peter Nelson. All you need to do is look and see that he still has his job. If his bosses were upset with the way he's handled things, he would have been fired way before this announcement. I don't want this to be a review of his tenure. I'm friends with him. I like him. But some of the comments I saw writers making about him just weren't warranted. He's worked hard with a low budget for a while, and he's found fighters like Golovkin and Kovalev. He's aired a lot of lower weight class guys, which were innovations that were only having a product of, of low money to work with. It's really not me defending my guy either. Like I said, Peter will likely regret the way he dealt with a lot of the boxing writers, and he could have handled this last part better. But his tenure also got you some fun fights in weight classes that had strong talent but low profile, made for some cost-efficient TV. If you want to criticize his matchmaking, which I do, I literally just criticized it earlier in this episode, here's the other mitigating factor. Go ask someone in the industry who the HBO matchmaker was who put together, like, undercard B-sides, because that person didn't exist. When Peter started here, there was Kerry Davis, Luis Barragon, and Peter all in the same department. And when Peter got promoted to run all of HBO Sports, which is just a couple of years ago, 
that department sort of just went away and Peter did all the work. So yes, he deserves some of the blame for that, but why wasn't there anyone there doing that job? Because the head of HBO Sports shouldn't be finding last-minute replacements for undercard, undercard B-side fighters. Anyways, back to HBO on the whole. There are rumors now in the Hollywood community that HBO is going to start programming Monday nights. At HBO, inside the building, people used to always say, more isn't better, better is better. But now they're going to need to do more and better. And boxing isn't going to be part of that, which for me and for all of you listening, I actually think is a really good thing. Monopolies constrict the sport. They constrict anything, pretty much. And HBO alone... And then HBO and Showtime together essentially had something approaching a monopoly on the sport, certainly at the highest level on the sport for decades. In a weird way, especially coming from a former HBO executive, that's really one of the major themes of this podcast. For all the complaining that's happened from boxing fans, that they're being gouged and they need to learn how to work all these apps, the reality is you'll never have so much boxing and you'll never have it as cheap for you have, as you do right now. Enjoy it. Yes, there'll be network divides. There'll be frustrations for some fights that won't get made. But I think it'll be much harder to protect fighters now. The money is just too good out there. Not all these TV entities will work either. I'm sure a lot of them will, though. When boxing is on ESPN and Fox, there's nowhere to hide if you do a bad rating. If you put out a crappy product and people don't end up watching it, networks like that cancel shows. They're just done with them. HBO doesn't need to do that. There are plenty of examples out there of shows where HBO, it got a terrible rating, and HBO just stuck with it. Everyone in the sports world was afraid of HBO boxing for years because they should have been. HBO does things really, really well. But there are lots of different business models that can support boxing. And the rest of the world has, got, has gotten to the point where <clears throat> a lot of this is really sustainable. Anyways... I'm done talking about HBO, except for a little bit of those other final two fights and then maybe in my year-end review episode. On to the preview section here. So on Saturday, November 3rd, we are back in the streaming world. And actually, the next two weeks are all streaming fights. There's three interesting cards on November 3rd, though. Let's start with ESPN Plus, where Miguel Burchell takes on Mickey Roman for Burchell's WBC Junior Lightweight title. Uh, this weight class I've talked about... Earlier, Burchelt opens as a pretty big favorite, like 10 to 1. To me, that's going to change. This fight could be a war. It could be competitive. I mean, you do have to obviously favor Burchelt, but I think uh, Roman certainly has a couple paths to victory, and the odds should not be that high. Also on the card, uh, Mariaga fights Jose Estrella. Uh, Miguel Mariaga is like a 50 to 1 favorite. That's a joke of a fight. Uh, but this one is really all about the main event. I think it is an excellent fight, even though the odds are 10 to 1. DeZone coming in really strong with a World Boxing Super Series card from Glasgow, where Josh Taylor is fighting Ryan Martin at junior welterweight, and Ryan Burnett takes on Donito Donaire at bantamweight uh, for a WBA title. Taylor is like a 7 or 8 to 1 favorite, um, but odds are everywhere, they're all over the place. They're like 5 to 1 to 11 to 1, who knows? Either way, it's a well-matched fight, it's a good fight, and, and oddly, like, kind of a step-up fight for both guys. Burnett's the same thing. He's like a 9 or 10 to 1 favorite of, over uh, Nonito Donaire. You know, 
again, like those odds don't totally reflect how close and fun the fight could be. But uh, Donaire is older, and and it's you know you hope that if he loses, it's it's the end for him with this. Burnett's a good fighter. Like you, you just never know with fighters like Donaire. He could come through with one of those signature left hooks, and 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 it could all be over. Facebook Watch also putting on a card where Sullivan Barrera fights Shawnee Monahan and Dennis Douglas fights Saul Roman. Barrera is like a ten to one favorite. He is kind of an inconsistent fighter, though. That could be a fun fight. On Saturday, November 10th, we got one of the real big fights of the fall where Alexander Usyk fights Tony Bellew from Manchester United Kingdom. And while on pay-per-view in the UK, this one is on DAZN in the USA. Usyk, about a 7 or 8 to 1 favorite. Anthony Krola fighting Dow Jordan in a lightweight title eliminator on the undercard. The Usyk fight is actually pretty big, both in terms of what happens next at cruiserweight and the landscape of the heavyweight division. If Usyk wins and looks great, what is really left for him at cruiserweight? I mean, the rest of the division is tied up in the World Boxing Super Series. So the next question is, does he need a fight at heavyweight before he looks at the inevitable matchup with Anthony Joshua? You have to think the reason he signed with Hearn was the dollars and the options for him at heavyweight. So this is a chess piece in the Wilder negotiations for AJ and Hearn. I've talked about this before. If Miller wins again on November 17th, Miller or Dillian White, who I think now fights on December 22nd, could get that April fight with AJ. Usyk could get a fight or two in the heavyweight division and then be ready for AJ's September date next year. It's very clear that DAZN and Showtime, that's like a network battle that... It might actually be a bigger battle than the actual heavyweight title fights right now. While HBO and Showtime did work together to make some of the bigger fights happen, they both worked on the pay-per-view model. The zone does not do that. So I highly doubt there's a scenario where there's a joint broadcast for anything DAZN and Showtime related. I mean, this is kind of nuts. Like, th- this is this is really crazy here with this. Um and, and I mean, ultimately, the Anthony Joshua Wilder fight. You know, and we're at the point where several things now need to happen for that. But there really aren't that many options for Wilder if he beats Fury. So you've you got to wonder which way this is going to go. Also on November 10th, DAZN bringing in more World Boxing Super Series action with a fight from Chicago where Maris Brady's fights Noel McIlan. I'm sure I'm butchering that name. I apologize. Christoph Gowacki, Gowacki taking on Maxime Vlasov, both at cruiserweight. Bradis is like a 15-1 favorite. Gowacki, Vlasov is almost even odds. Gowacki a slight favorite. Um, should be a good fight. Looking forward to that one, too. I say that about all the World Boxing Super Series cards. Upcoming shows. I'm going to look at what the PBC is doing on Showtime and Fox uh, with what appears to be the really risky strategy with pay-per-view, as I mentioned before. Um... You know, like I said, the Wilder Fury fight at this point looks like it might do at least like not something embarrassing. Like, I don't think it's going to do great. I, the, you know, with the Joe Rogan interview for Fury, with him looking like he's in shape and being in America and, and it, like, I actually think now that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to hit 300,000 buys, um, but I don't think it'll do an embarrassing number at this point. But you never know. Like I said, I've said it before. 
it's sort of like the last, but you can get everything right in the last three days of the pay-per-view. If you get stuff wrong, um, then that's it. And remember, like, this is the week after Thanksgiving. Like, it's Thanksgiving and then Thanksgiving weekend, and then this one's the next weekend. So the margin for error is razor thin on this. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to incorporate Fox saying they want to do four pay-per-views next year into this and look at what that means. I want to do a viewer experience show. There's a lot of good and bad things I notice about watching ESPN Plus and DAZN, especially uh, streaming services like that. I'm definitely going to do a year year-end review show where I look at each broadcasting entity, what they brought to the table in 2018, how much it costs you as a consumer, and sort of like who wins that value battle. Um, I got an article in Ring Magazine. It should be hitting the shelves soon. I spoke about it last week, but it is the cover story. I'm so proud of it. I want to thank Doug Fisher. I want to thank Brian Hardy for working through that. That one because of all the news that was breaking right before that one was due, we were changing that like every day. Thank you guys so much for that. Uh, and finally, while we're on the subject of, of, of me writing, congrats to two boxing writers in particular. Mike Coppinger has broken like three or four major stories in a row. Uh, and, and not just from one network or promoter. He's talked about Showtime, Triple G, where they're going, what's happening there. He's getting them from several different places. Congrats to him. Congrats to Steve Kim, who just got hired by ESPN. I'll say this about Steve. When he did uh, the next round with Gabriel Montoya, which was on this very network, the Leave It In The Ring radio network, there were HBO sports people who listened to his show to get information, not just on what was happening at Showtime, but also what was happening in their own building. So congrats to him going to ESPN. Um, It's been real, guys. If you're not subscribing to the streaming services, you're going to miss two weeks of great fights, especially that Usyk Belu fight. That's a good one. And, and, and the Burchelt Roman fight, that'll be fun. You know, it's a different way to watch boxing, but that's the world we're in now. So I encourage you all to sign up. I encourage you all to join and watch it. You're going to get a great experience and you're going to get a cheaper experience than what you were getting with HBO, basically. Or for the same price, probably. I guess it was $15 a month for HBO, $15 for ESPN Plus and DAZN combined. But that's not counting the pay-per-views you were being charged on HBO. I'm saying that. I used to work there. Your total cost for the year is going to be less. All right. I'm done talking. I'm out. Enjoy the podcast. I'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Did you get what you was looking for?